I am a firm believer that people only think they want full transparency. Nobody in the retail world shows you their overhead and how much they're making. Nobody. That's like insane. And why we think that this is smart in our business is like crazy to me. Hi, I'm Caitlin Peterson, the Editor-in-Chief of Business of Home. Welcome to Trade Tales. In every episode, I'll be talking to interior designers about everything from nurturing creativity and finding their firm's financial footing to discovering their own version of success. This season, we're also focusing on finding purpose, whether that's in the work you do for clients or your impact on the world at large. My guest today is a designer who got some surprising advice just as she was starting to feel settled in her business. While she thought she couldn't afford to hire any more employees, she was told that if she wanted to keep delivering a high level of service, she couldn't afford not to. I can't wait to share it with you. But first, a quick word from our sponsors. Great design never sleeps. And that's why High Point Market's social media pages are filled with resources, programming, and news all year round, keeping the interior design community connected. Be sure to follow High Point Market on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn so you never miss the latest. And with Fall Market coming up in October, don't forget to pre-register at highpointmarket.org. High Point Fall Market is almost here, and you don't want to miss another incredible lineup of designer-focused speakers, panels, and seminars at Universal Furniture's Learning Center. You'll hear from top industry leaders like Kathy Kuo, Sandra Funk, and Kate Lester in riveting, informative, business-minded talks. Space is limited, so be sure to save your seat. Registration is open now at universalfurniture.com slash market events. Plus, visit the Universal Showroom October 12th to 18th and see the all-new Modern Offering at 101 South Hamilton Street. I grew up in, I'd say, a pretty avant-garde family. My uh, mother ran an art gallery that my grandfather and grandmother had started. I grew up in a world surrounded by wonderful, exciting, provocative art around wonderful, exciting, provocative artists. I think just growing up in this very like art-forward, design-forward world shaped who I am and gave me this kind of natural inclination and probably one that, I don't know, maybe I was genetically inclined to anyway. I'm not a great artist, and so I don't think I ever translated that I could do something with art. So I didn't make the connection until much later. That's Zoe Feldman. After studying journalism, she had a brief, disastrous stint in advertising. As that job ended, she went looking for her calling and enrolled in the design program at Parsons, where she was immediately enthralled. She soon landed an interview for an internship with Alexa Hampton, who had recently taken over her late father's firm. It was such a cool environment, and Alexa was so cool and friendly, and it was this really kind of like interesting, chaotic, fun, energy-filled, young office. And I was like, oh, I want to work here. And thankfully, they hired me to intern. Within six weeks of interning with Alexa, she hired me to assist her. And then very shortly after that, she turned me into the design assistant. And then I just sort of grew from there until I worked there about four plus years into a proper designer. I remember my mom came to see where I worked. She wanted to meet Alexa. 
And I guess like Alexa pulled her aside and said something like, you know, I just have to tell you, your daughter really has it. No matter what I send her to do, you know, she always comes back and it's done so well and she just nails it. It was so pivotal to my growth. And like, it gave me this like shot of self-esteem. It was like the first time that, I don't know, I think somebody let me know that I was good at something and I could see that I was in the right place. After getting married, Zoe moved back to her hometown in Florida and tried to find work with a local designer. But the same magic she had found with Alexa just wasn't there. I attempted to work for a designer in Florida, which was, as you can imagine, an absolute disaster and lasted like four days. And I was like, no way. It was that I was actually hanging gondola art. I was like, this is a fall from grace too steep. I sort of just felt like I have no options here. I'm not in a city. It's the Sarasota, Florida, where I'm from. It's this small place on the west coast of Florida that like isn't exactly a design mecca. At the time, it just wasn't thriving. I didn't really have a lot of options. So I was like, all right, I'm just gonna go off on my own. Yeah, I always say like going off my own was like this great combination of like naivete, arrogance, and like, I don't know, youth, maybe. Zoe officially launched her firm in 2004. And since then, she's built a robust business that includes design, e-commerce, and editorial teams. I wanted to talk to her about why she's introduced a scaled-down option to her design offerings for clients who just want good advice, the many ways she's built philanthropy into the fabric of her firm, and why she insists that clients don't really want full transparency. What did it take to start to hit your stride? So I moved to Washington, D.C., in 2008. So it was great because I could now commute to New York. And I began to pick up better work here in DC because, you know, the people were more aligned with my aesthetic here. And I think that I had made so many mistakes, frankly, like in Florida. And in retrospect, that was probably a good spot for it because the stakes were a bit lower, I guess. Um, I, I didn't end up staying there. I wasn't really building this big practice there. So it's kind of like a, a layover for me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so sorry for all those who came before. Yeah. And I think at that point, I've always been somebody, and I encourage other people to do this. I've always been somebody where I really look at my mistakes. I accept them. I take them head on. And I, I say like, I'm fine to make mistakes, but I don't want to make the same mistake twice. Right. So I have this sort of catalog of mistakes that I... I, I try never to do again. And I try, we do something here at my office, design tips every month, where I offer like some type of education to my team around some sort of topic. And we also talk about like the things to do and not to do. And then also at our monthly meetings, we all do our highs and lows that are meant to both inspire and also to save other people from making similar <laughs> mistakes. Mm -hmm. So I, that's kind of fundamental to who I am and like what I've brought into my practice. Yeah. And so at that point, I think I had, I had made a lot of them and I was feeling like I can do this better. And I was making a little bit of money. I think maybe I was in the very barely black and I was able to hire a part-time design assistant and that was helpful. What did that do for you? I hired somebody who was, was stylish because I think that's generally important, especially when, it, when you're very small, right? Because you're going to be collaborating and naturally any small firm, you're going to wear a lot of hats. But she also had an accounting background and had some interest in that. And so, and she was very organized and I am not. And she was like very A-type and I am not. And I was like, okay, this, this woman will help balance me a bit. Um, someone once told me this wonderful architect in DC who's the um, 
he's passed now, but he's the father of one of my closest friends. And he's this architect called Paul Devereaux. Um, he built some wonderful buildings in DC. And I would ask him for advice anytime I was near him, because that's also <laughs> who I am. And like, if you are somebody I admire and I get in, and I'm in your orbit, I'm going to start asking you annoying questions to learn from you. <laughs> one of the questions I asked him one of the last times I saw him before he died was, um, like, what's your best advice to build a business? Like, to grow a business. And he was like, hire people better than you. And so I've taken that with me too. And hiring her, I think was just, I could see spaces where she was better than me. And I could accept that and, and use that to my advantage and to the company's advantage and the client's advantage. Can you talk a little bit about some of those early design mistakes and how you, how you are able to look them head on and sort of say, okay, not that ever again. I spent a lot of time at the Washington Design Center and now I was doing an apartment in New York City while living in DC. And um, I bought this beautiful light from Baker. And I was so excited because it was so expensive. And <laughs> I was going to make so much money, I felt like, you know, and only to realize that the light where I'm putting it needs to be moved a bit. No big deal, right? Lights always have to be moved. This isn't a big deal. Except the building is a post-war building with cement ceilings. Oh. <laughs> And you can't jackhammer in these New York City buildings and blah, 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 blah. And the client doesn't want to drop the ceiling for a, first of all, who wants to drop me the post-war building? They're probably not that tall anyway. And, you know, this whole thing. So all of a sudden, I was like, oh, my God. I have a Baker light. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I need to figure this out. And I was like, literally, this could sink my battleship. Like, if, the, if I can't get the person, like somebody to take this back. And not with the restocking fee, because the restocking fee would have been an enormous amount of money for me. I don't know. I'm going to have to figure it out. Like, it's, this is not going to be good. So thankfully, I had spent all this time at the design center creating this relationship with this woman, Katie, who worked at Baker. And she, she talked to somebody. And somehow, probably because she felt she took pity on me, <laughs> she got them to take it back. Okay. That's huge. It was – I did not – I probably did not thank her enough. It was – massive because you know when you're young and you don't you don't have all that cash to burn you right. never want to burn cash but sometimes it feels less scary so now i always know there's cement ceilings in post-war buildings people <laughs> when you see track lights they're probably there for a reason or you know you see that you see drop ceilings in certain places and not others so good to always ask about that what was the moment when you really feel like it was comfortable <sighs> when i met my current husband so I met my current husband in 2015. So I'd been working for a while in DC and in New York. And I was already starting to, I was already getting some, I don't know if I see notoriety, but I, you know, I, I was getting press and you know, things were happening for me. And I was, I had built the business up to maybe five of us and you know, I was producing pretty good work. And then I met Matt and um, he is a CPA. He began to look at my books and and he was like wow you're doing really 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 well and i was like yeah i am and he's like so why don't you have any staff i'm like i do i have these like three people or four people or whatever <laughs> it was and like a couple interns <laughs> i'm great yeah this feels like and it probably feels that feels like a lot a lot i was stoked and i was like honestly i can't afford to hire anyone else like this is this is good and he's like Zoe, you can't afford not to hire 
more people. Like you have way too much work and not enough staff and you will never be able to deliver like a good service like this. Whoa. I know. And I was like, say more. Also, (laughs) why don't you come help me? So he did that and we began to grow and I began to just like blind faith trust that he was correct because I didn't understand numbers and he did. What was his vision? You know, when he said, you know, you need like, where is your staff? And you're like, I have all these people. What was the number that he saw for you as like where the firm should be? Well, he asked me like, how big do you want to get? And I'm like, as big as I can. Like, I want to have 70 people working for me. I want to have like multiple branches, build careers for people. And my biggest dream is like, I want people who work for me to make a bunch of money. Like not just a little bit of money, but like having a massive career within my world, like within this like company we have. And he's like, okay, well, you have to grow. Like you can't do it. Like this is never, this is not working. And I'm like, okay. So yeah, I think once he knew that I was here for world domination, he was like, all right, let's do it. What does that look like today? Where are you on the path to world domination? (laughs) We are now like 20 three people, I think. We have expanded to have a satellite New York office where we have a small staff there who are boots on the ground there, like live there, obviously. Um, I spend most of my time in Washington and I spend a week, a month about in New York. We have launched a newsletter and I guess what you might call a blog that's called BS by ZF called But Seriously. (laughs) We have a product launch coming out in January. I definitely want to lean into some more product. Um, We are still staying as sustainable as possible and have have our give back initiative and building that up. So, and we are about to launch something new. We're going to be doing some e-commerce. Okay. It's in its infancy. So I don't think there's like too, too much to talk about yet, but we're working on that. That's coming soon. What does that mean for you? Is that kind of like a shop the look type thing so that people who love what you do can kind of buy in or is it more complicated? It'll be similar to that. We also have launched, um, the other thing that's important is we've launched, we have both a full service and something we call design anywhere, which is a bit of like a lighter service, a lighter touch. So we saw that we were getting inquiries that maybe couldn't yield the full service fees and experience, but were very robust and lovely and healthy budgets and design enthusiasts and all of this. And so we figured out a way to um, work with that sect of people as well. And then I also have the expert for people Mm -hmm. who, you know, just sort of need like one-off like hours here and there to um, help with their space. With that ecosystem, how has your role evolved? Where are you kind of most engaged on the day-to-day level with the different pieces of your business? And how have you built a team around you to support each of those initiatives and endeavors? Okay, guys. So spoiler alert, Matt (laughs) did come on as my CFO (laughs) and president. Okay. During the pandemic, I finally convinced him to drop his boring consulting job and come and help me properly grow this business. So now he is the president and CFO of our company. What did that change for you? Everything. I now like no longer have to worry about anything financial. And I, you know, we talk still and we, you know, we consult about certain things because I don't want to 
completely like bow out and not have any understanding of like the business world of not something that's interesting to me either. But I have this like great support. Yeah. So that's been wonderful. So I can primarily focus on essentially being the like chief creative officer slash creative director. Um, I still work very closely with all of the teams in probably more of an editor capacity. That's probably, that's typically how I think of it, where the teams, you know, are coming in with wonderful ideas and then I'm editing them and sometimes with very light edits and sometimes I'm blowing things up because I tend to do that. So I haven't really moved away much. My goal is to probably work four days a week and have a little more balance with my family and my children, but we're not quite there yet. I have wonderful people who work here logistically who help with my schedule and have really, um, we've really leaned into time blocking. That has okay. been really huge for the growth and for managing all of the different components of the world, my world now. And so on Mondays and Wednesdays, I do design development meetings with the teams. And then on Tuesdays and Thursdays, it's more marketing and client meetings and site visits. And then on Fridays is typically when we'll do any sort of potential client things and maybe just some runoff if there's like anything extra. We try to do remote Fridays for the team. So it's typically not a creative collaborative day. What kind of discipline does that require from you? That sounds like a hard thing to transition into, at least at the beginning, to have that much structure. Yeah, to be honest, without it, I don't think there's a way to do it. And so I don't look at it that way. I look at it as actually the piece, mm, like mm-hmm. the, the only way for this whole thing to actually work. Without structure and without the organizational technique of it, there would be no way for any of these things to get done. And even with all of that structure in place, my wonderful assistant, Rachel, who's phenomenal and has to move at every turn and, you know, she really has to stay on her toes. She's still constantly moving things around to work when things like this wonderful podcast come up. You know, we're obviously not going to be like, well, on this day, we typically do this. So no, <laughs> you know, right. <laughs> we're taking a quick break to remind you about universal furniture. At High Point Market this fall, experience more than 100 all-new items for the whole home from the Modern Collection. Plus, discover Universal's special order dining chair, bed, and ottoman upholstery programs. And while you're there, visit the Designer's Lounge for hair touch-ups at the beauty bar and special events throughout Fall Market. Sign up online at universalfurniture.com slash market events or visit the showroom October 12th to 18th at 101 South Hamilton Street. How did that dedicated day help protect your creativity? Well, I think I put my head into the game that I'm in. So I know that on Mondays and Wednesdays, I'm going to be creative-ish and Wednesdays are highly creative, meaning that Mondays are like sort of the first edit probably of what we're doing and, our, and then Wednesdays are like the, okay, we talked about it, we edited, now let's like dig into it, make it right. And I have my head in that game. Like these are my design days. And whereas like Tuesdays and Thursdays when I'm doing more marketing and things, I'm thinking more editorial on those days. And so, you know, like I said, we iterated a lot. At one point I had marketing and design on the same day. And I was like, my brain can't do this. It's like shifting <laughs> gears too fast. They're totally different worlds. I thought they were the same worlds because they're both creative. They're totally different worlds, you know? And so I think a lot of it is also 
trial and error, right? Like you, and, and people I think spend a lot of time trying to figure out the best path forward rather than just living the path, finding the mistakes in the path and adjusting. Yeah. People tend to be, I found that very afraid of not getting it right. And it's like, you're never going to be correct the first time. So just do it, try it. I say this to my team too. I'm like, look, give me something, especially new people. I'm like, give me something. It's probably going to be terrible. And that's okay. Because we haven't really talked about it much and you're still learning. And this is how you learn. And the next time you do it, it will be less terrible. And the next time it will be good. And the next time it will be great. And we will get there. Same with writing. I'm like, just give me something to the writers on my staff. Like, just like, give me something. You know, I'm probably going to, in the beginning, before you know my voice, like edit the hell out of it and be like, but, but eventually it's going to get really smooth, you know? So I think it's just like about getting in there, diving in, figuring out what works, figuring out what doesn't and being nimble. I think a lot of it is about being nimble. We're going to pivot because you just said, I talked to the writers on my staff, which is not something I've ever heard from a designer before. <laughs> so I want to talk a little bit about who those people are on your team. And let's start with the writers. What made you want to hire an editorial team? I knew I wanted to lean into this sort of like editorial media world. And um, I'm not that. Like, I'm not a writer. And so I wanted to have someone or people on my team who could elevate that and also add to the work, right? So not just like help with my writing, but also be a voice within my team. I have this sort of dream. Like I was always inspired by, do you remember when Chelsea Handler had her show and she would bring like young comedians on? Yes, yes. And she created this platform for them that then they like many of them launched from. I've always felt that way about the work here too. Like I really want to get to a place where I am an area where young designers and young writers and whomever can have their own voice here and build, build a brand for themselves within our brand. So, so I hired this woman, Rachel was the first hire. She had been at this corporate kind of company before, but she sat down and she's adorable and had this wonderful energy. And she was like, oh, I just really wanted to be a television writer. Like, <laughs> I was like, oh my God, I'm obsessed with that. Like, <laughs> this means you're funny. This means you're creative. Like, I love this. And so I hired her. We didn't have a we actually didn't have a marketing job for her yet because we hadn't like launched that part, but we had an office manager job and she was applying to be an office manager and she was clearly overqualified, but I got what she was doing and I liked that how industrious she was. She was sort of like, get my foot in the door this way. They'll see that I'm not, maybe not that great at ordering pencils, but I'm really good at these other things that they'll need me for. And that's what happened. And I just saw what she's just like brilliant writer. And I began to ask her for help on certain things kind of casually and then eventually moved her out of the office manager position that she knows this. She was not as good at, but she was amazing <laughs> at this other creative component. Yeah. And then she helped me launch this marketing um, branch. And then we've recently hired someone else, a woman named Courtney, who does also like is a wonderful writer and also does like great PR work. And we worked with a consultant named Allie Maringhall, who had done had worked at Domino and all these sorts of things. And she helped Rachel and Courtney bring the vision of But Seriously to life. And so I've also relied on some outside consultants at times to help subsidize what we don't have here on staff. 
you know, you were able to articulate early that your vision for this business was to be big, to be involved in lots of things. Now that you've embraced that, now that you're moving towards that sort of wholeheartedly, what does it feel like to come to work every day and know that that's what you're building toward? I always knew that I could do this if I believed in myself enough and worked hard enough and also surrendered enough. You know, there's a lot of anxiety in building a business. There's a lot of things that come up that you don't anticipate and are pretty scary. And you have to have a lot of blind faith. You know, as a young person looking back, I can remember feeling in my like belly, like that I needed to do something big and not understanding what that was yet before fully becoming a designer. And, and I, and I was still, I was like doing it, but not doing it really well. And like in the Florida days, I was also, you know, at one point trying to write a book and at one point trying to launch a bathing suit line. And I just like knew something needed to happen and I just like, couldn't find it, but I believed, and I just kept I don't know, my head down. And when, when things would show up, like that didn't feel good with like the bathing suit and it just immediately was like, this isn't right. I drop it and move on. I didn't attach myself to things, if that makes sense. I still don't, you know, Matt and I had a startup briefly during COVID and we worked with this outside consultant and um, this really bright guy named Josh Liberson. And he helped us a lot when we were thought, we thought we knew what we were doing. And then one day he called me and we'd already raised seed money. We'd done all this stuff. And he was like, you know, Zoe, I, you're really blowing up. And I don't think, I don't think this is the right path for you. I don't know how to say this to you, but I don't think this is what you should be putting your energy into. I think you need to be putting your energy into you as a brand. Like you are already doing that. That's already showing success. Like, why are you pivoting over to this other thing? that has nothing to do with you. You're not even branding it through you. It's like this whole other energy. And I was like, you're right. <laughs> I, he was right. And that was the moment where it was like, you know, somebody else might have been like, no, we can't. We're already this far down the road. We can't stop. And it's like, yes, you can. If there's a better path, you absolutely can. And so we did. That day, I talked to Matt. He agreed. And I was like, all right, we'll figure out how to get out of this. And I put all my energy into myself, which is what I should have been doing all along. Not the bathing suit, not the, you know, chair, you know, these other things <laughs> that, that weren't right. But it took a long time. I mean, this is only in like 2020, 2021, you know, to fully invest in myself. As you hire more people, as you grow, as you do, you know, fully invest in yourself, how does your role have to change? And how did you get comfortable with your evolving role in your own firm? I think I have to both be more authoritative and less micromanaging if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So I have to know when I am the authority and I am the expert and trust my gut and not crowdsource and just talk to Matt about it and just say, this is what we're doing, even if it's not a popular opinion to my staff. And I also, on the flip side of the coin, have to know when it isn't my area of expertise and I need to trust in Matt's decision or our design director or the marketing director, like whatever it is to say, okay, maybe I'm not the best person to make this decision. I recently overrode a decision the marketing team didn't want me to do. And it ended up being, I was wrong and they were right. And had I just listened to them, it would have been a better outcome. So it's learning that too, you know. How much do clients still see you or where, you know, how does your 
relationship with the day-to-day of a client project change as the team grows? So full-service clients see me a lot. I'm heavily involved in all of our full-service. I do a lot of new business. I do the majority of client meetings. Um, I do a lot of the early programming with architects um, and contractors and potential clients. And then, by the way, and then the full service, I'm not quite as involved on the project management side. And I show up heavily on the installation portion again, which is at the end. But I tend to create very close relationships with my clients as well. And we do multiple jobs for them and we have very long lasting relationships. And often they become friends, which has been really nice and doesn't happen when you're a young designer because you're not quite seen maybe as like an equal yet. Um, and But as you grow and you build your reputation, you build your craft, that does happen. And that's a really nice moment when you can become friends with your clients and it can feel very collaborative and very friendly. And that is really nice. Um, with my Design Anywhere clients, I show up, I'd say, 20% of the time. So everything still passes through me. Um, so internally, that all happens, you know, at a smaller scale, at a lighter touch, but the same. There's someone in between the design team and me. And I maybe show up to like one of every four or five client meetings. Is that Design Anywhere package, where does it stop being full service? Or like, where does the track diverge, I guess? It's a lot more formulaic in this, from a, a execution standpoint. So if you are a local client, there might be a couple of in-person meetings, but there will also still be more virtual meetings than in-person. It's called Design Anywhere because it's it can be anywhere. So if it's a job in Michigan, there are likely no in-person meetings. We also remove ourselves from a lot of the daily project management. We still give the client the tools and the deliverables they need so that they don't make mistakes. They have all of the documents to give the contractor and things like this so that we protect them but we don't help with the execution like we do in our full service. What it is, it's for people who have, you know, a nice budget, but rather than paying, you know, all of these fees and things for us to just do everything for them, they're willing to get their hands dirty a bit and get more out of us from a creative side and product side. So are they ordering their own products or? No, we still do the procurement. Because okay. we want to manage, we want to be in control of that and be able to manage it. But because they don't have to, they're not spending as much time with the project management side, the fees are less. And so it's for people who are like, look, I can't put all this money into fees. I want to put the bulk of the money into like product and your brain and get your creative brain. And so it's for that client. But they'll be managing the tile installer. Correct. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. And so, you know, our full service don't want that. That's not what they're interested in. They don't need to do that. But, you know, if I were doing it, I'd probably need to be more of, you know, a design anywhere client. If you're headed to High Point Market this fall, it's time to make your travel plans. Simplify that itinerary planning with the complimentary services of TravelQuest. From flights to car rentals and local accommodations, TravelQuest can definitely assist with configuring your team's market logistics all week long. Call TravelQuest at 336-434-9920 or email hpmarket at travelquestinc.com. How have you approached billing for your work? 
(laughs) endless, endless question and pivot and how do we best do this? Oh God, we've done everything. In the moment, Caitlin, and if we talk again in a year, it'll probably be different, but in the moment, (laughs) we're working toward an hourly component for programming while we fully define the scope and work with architects and then a flat fee for the design management and project management, which is new for us. We used to only flat fee design and then hourly project management and then hourly for installation. So it's basically bookended hourly and then a flat fee in the center. What is the benefit of doing it that way? Or what, what are you, what theory are you testing with that model? So the fee- Thank you for asking, because obviously there is a theory. Well, on, on the accounting side, I think it's easier, number one. And there's just less like pay- paperwork and all that, and less hassle. From my perspective, I want to try to create a world where the client is a little more aware of exactly what they'll spend on us. I want to leave a lot more space for the client to spend more on product and get really, really, really good product into the hands of the client and them not to feel like they're overindulged or oversubscribed in this like fee component that's like making it feel like we're spending so much money monthly on you and it's a little unknown how much we spend. Does that mindset make people make more conservative choices sometimes? It does, I think, because it's sort of the hemorrhaging. I I believe that it's part of this, like I always say like this, like hemorrhaging feeling, which you have anyway with a contractor. So we're trying to stop the hemorrhage on our side. I want to get good art into more people's hands. I've been really passionate about that lately. We have wonderful clients who we have built art collections for. I don't know if all designers do this. We work with, with consultants, but we are obviously because of my background, like I'm very picky and very, very hugely a part of the art acquisition, which can be very a difficult and long journey to get people to. And so I just want to make space for, yeah, like better acquisitions in general for people and not have them feel like they're sort of unclear of what they'll spend on us. How is that working so far? I don't know. We're in the infancy of it. Okay. <laughs> um, it seems, to, I don't know. I've all, you know, th- this is always the real question, Caitlin. Do people want full transparency or do they prefer not to have it? That is the constant question that I have. You know, some designers are like, you know, they show their markup. Like, I don't do that. I come from a space of like, I don't want to know how much these jeans were purchased for, then see the markup and then buy them. I'm like, I'll be like, That makes me sick to my stomach. But if I've decided that I'm okay with this price tag, like that's good enough. Right. So yeah, 1000, we will never change that. And For all of you listening, I am a firm believer that people only think they want full transparency, but they don't actually, because it's gross. You're like, oh, yay, great to see you're making X percentage of this. (laughs) Like, why don't you take 10% off since you're already making, like, wouldn't that just, that's what my brain would do. It'd be like, well, well, just make a little less and I can, and everyone's happy. You know, I mean, if you look at the other way I've built my business, I've looked at successful businesses like Restoration Hardware. They don't do that. They do the opposite. They mark up to mark down to make you pretend you're always getting a deal. You're not getting a deal. They've figured it all out already on the book. I mean, this is all, this is all psychology. Right. That sale isn't really a sale or whatever that number discount. Yeah. And by the way, there's no such thing as free shipping. It's just embedded into the price. (laughs) Right. But nobody in the retail world shows you their overhead and how much they're making. Nobody. That's like insane. And why we think that this is smart in our business is like crazy to me. 
Okay, but if there's no such thing as free shipping, you know, for design clients, getting that shipping and tax bill at the end can be, you know, a real rude awakening too. How have you baked in like transport costs or something like that? So we embed all the shipping. We I have for years and years and years. Nobody ever should use any any shipping costs. Where does that go? Into the product cost? Yeah. So we'll just like if they want to buy tile, we'll say your tile for your bath is ten thousand dollars. It includes shipping. Like it's all it's all included. Don't worry about it. Do you want to spend five thousand dollars or no? Okay. No, you want to spend less? We'll find a cheaper tile. Because what used to happen is people would be like, wait, it's twenty five hundred for the tile and twenty five hundred shipping. Well, can I go pick it up? Where? Where right. do you think you're picking this tile up? <laughs> it could be in Morocco. It could be, you know, at Long Island City and somewhere. I don't know where this tile is. <laughs> Can I go pick it up? What are you talking about? You know, and so we just say, like, this is the price of it. If you don't like the price, I get that. Let's let's value engineer and buy something and get something less. So I can't change the shipping. The shipping is what it is. Right. You've you've made a lot of the creative work and the installation work hourly. What's the thinking there? Why why does that make sense for you? Not the creative work. We've made the oh, programming sorry. hourly. Okay. So the programming has slight creative moments in it, like the um, concept development and when we redline architecture, architects work, and as we fully define the scope based on you know where the architect lands and all of that. But once we get into design development and project management, then it it is a flat fee and. Yeah, and the idea for that was just we purchase a lot of product in that time, right? And so we also make money on procurement. And I've always just felt like I don't want to be egregious in any one spot, right? I want to, there's different ways that we make money. We make some money hourly, we make some money in flat fee, we make some money in product. And so to be honest, the flat fee, we probably lose money, but that's okay because it's when we're doing procurement. So we're making it up on that end. So it's just a way to, I guess, like not feel that our billing is like super egregious, which is just like makes me uncomfortable, even though like no one's actually complaining, which may, maybe I'm doing a dumb thing. How often are you invoicing clients? Like what is the kind of cadence? cadence. Yeah. Um, I believe they invoice monthly on like the same day or like it's pretty sorted. There's an expectation and we send weekly statements for all hourly work so that, and this was a huge change in my business. I used to just send monthly statements for our hourly work. And it was like report card day in my house. Like everybody called and was angry and didn't expect it. <laughs> oh my God. And I would be like, okay, I'll give you 10% off. I'll give you 50 because we come from the client is always right attitude. And we will do everything to maintain a relationship with the client unless it's, it's a bad client. And then we part ways, but like assuming we love the client and the client is good to us and all of that. So it's just causing a lot of problems. And so we just, now we send weekly statements. So at any given week, a client can call me and say, oof, this is pretty heavy or whatever. So by the time they get their monthly, you know, it's only a week that they haven't seen. And that we don't, we don't get any calls anymore. That's great. They see it every week before it's a bill. So it's like you could theoretically, and I tell them this, call me and talk to me about whatever's going on. Don't wait till the, the end of the month talking about the first week. You had the first week, three weeks ago. Right. So it puts the onus on them too and creates some accountability on their side. You know, it, it used to feel messed up on our side too. It's like, okay, well, you let us all do this, all, do all this work only to complain about it. But then I was like, oh, it's also kind of not fair because maybe they didn't realize we we're doing all this work. So now it's like, okay, 
this is where I, the only area I think transparency is good. Mm -hmm. It's like, you see that we are working on these things. This is what we're doing. This is how much it is. If you have a problem, nope, that's not a problem. Let me know. The problem for me will be if you try to complain about the first week on the fourth week. I also am realizing that the only time you're doing this is when you're collaborating with other people the client has hired. Is that fair to say in um, some way? Because it's it's not for like design. It's not like X number of hours to find the lamp anymore. Right. Correct. Correct. And that, right, because nobody liked that. (laughs) Um, I think so many people struggling with hourly billing are struggling with transparency around like, oh, I was like searching for the right X, Y, or Z for, you know, for 15, 15 hours might be insane. Yeah. (laughs) Also, Caitlin, we dropped all that a long time ago. All we we have, we just have buckets. Yeah. We say we were either doing project management and we have like, I think three types of project management we do, whether it's like, I don't know, like communications or proposals, whatever. And then so that goes into that bucket. If it's like design development, it just goes into like, we're resourcing F like furniture. I don't know, just like basically sourcing. So we, we killed that a long, long, long time ago because yeah, people would be like, what? It took you 45 minutes to quote my sofa. I'm like, yeah, it did. Have you ever seen one of these things? Yeah. Yeah. Would you like to come shadow us for a day so you can see And like, and so it just became like, this is never going to work. I would say 5% of our clients ask for details. And we give it to them. You want details? Fine. You want to get annoyed every? Fine. <laughs> Here's the details. Are you still kind of doing that? You know, there's the flat fee for design development and project management. Are you still sort of reporting back? Like, here's the time that was spent no, on your project. That, that's yeah. all part of it is now that we're moving into this even deeper flat fee version. We stopped doing it for design development a long time ago. We've been flat fee on that for a while. Yeah. We have some hourly clients, like fully hourly. That's the other component. We have had clients prior to us going into the flat fee who have, I have done 100% hourly before. You know, I've done it all. Um, Is it hard to switch someone midstream? We don't ever switch anyone midstream. Yeah. Um, unless, unless it's really early and I realize this isn't a good fit. This happened. This has happened a few times where I'm like, look, you're not going to want to be hourly. I know you thought you wanted to be, but trust <laughs> me, you don't. Yeah. Like I'm going to put you on this flat fee and you're going to win. Yeah. And, and I just know they're going to be unhappy every month and it's just not going to work, you know, cause some clients to be, you know, completely frank, there are a few people who, for some reason, like to pay hourly. I'm like, okay, man. <laughs> but I always say, if at any point, you know, you want to switch to a flat fee, just, you know, let me know. So much of the show's theme this season is finding purpose. Like, what is your purpose when you think about your business? So my father, the dentist, he um, always wanted to figure out a way to give back. And eventually he figured out a way to give back through, he was a surgeon, like a gum surgeon. And he eventually figured out something with his CAT scan machine. And rather than charging the, the patient, he would charge them $100 and then donate it. And then he would match it. And he raised hundreds of thousands of dollars over time, over not that much time, a few years. And it was kind of been crazy. And so... I kept trying to figure out how I could give back. And everyone kept telling me, oh, now that you're getting bigger, you should charge for your consult. And they weren't wrong. They're like, oh, because you're wasting your time with people who can't actually afford you or aren't a good fit. And I was like, you're not wrong, but like also that feels weird. Like I'm just not really comfortable doing that. You know, like, hey, give me a bunch of money and I'll like let you know if I feel like working for you. I don't know. It just felt (laughs) like not my jam. While I was pregnant, I realized, oh my God, the earth is burning and we're sitting inside of it and then bringing a baby into this world. 
And now I really need to figure out a way to get back. And it became more top of mind. And I went back to those thoughts I had about this consultation. And so I thought, well, why don't I align with some charities that are helping the earth? And I will ask for money for everyone who wants to have a consultation with me. And then if they sign, we match whatever donation they gave, you know, as sort of saying like, we also have skin in this game and we want to give more money. And then we've added on to that since the beginning. So we also, we plant like a thousand plus trees at the end of any of every project. I will tell you that, you know, I think we talked about this the first time in December of 2020 as part of the 50 States project. Mm -hmm. And this idea is probably the thing that more people have talked to me about than anything else I've ever written about in this series. That's so nice to hear. How has it resonated, you know, in your world and with your clients? It's so wonderful because I've been told this by potential and existing clients. You know, I was thinking about a few people, then I saw your give back program and I was like, oh, I'm just gonna go with this girl. I like her work and she does this great thing. You know, she obviously has like values aligned with mine. So it adds a layer of trust, I think, into the relationship. Yeah, and then it paves the way for additional conversations, right? Like, you know, we don't like things in landfills. So how can we offload the things we're ripping out in a way that's meaningful? And I hope you like a lot of vintage pieces because we don't like to add a bunch of waste into the world or artisan pieces or made to order pieces, you know, and just like kind of thoughtful conversations. Is that something you find clients are receptive to? Yes. I think that if for nothing else, people want to get rid of things and they would rather them not go into a landfill. They would rather feel that they're being donated or resold or something, you know, and like part of a circular economy, whether if it's just for convenience and it's not their problem because we handle it all. <laughs> right. Or, and that's, and that I'm sure is sometimes the case, or just they also are aligned with that mission and, you know, are happy to know that they aren't working with a company that will allow that to happen. So Yeah. I mean, generally very responsive. When you look back, what is the one thing you know now that you wish you had known when you founded your firm? To be honest, I think it worked out exactly how it should have, because if I'd known what was ahead of me, (laughs) I don't think I would have ever jumped into the water and I'm so glad I did. So I think it's perfect, right? It's like, you should know enough to be smart and know that there's going to be a lot of hard work and it's not going to be a linear experience and it's going to ebb and flow and you're going to have moments you want to quit. I had a major moment where I wanted to quit, but don't just stick it out. And that's all part of life. Don't expect it to always be this uphill climb or this downhill slide. I don't know how you would say it. Don't expect it all to be roses, right? Like, yeah. I don't, I don't think I needed to know anything. I think I knew what I needed to know, which was not enough. And all those lessons <laughs> taught me. And I mean, I don't know if I'd gone back, maybe I'd say stay at Alexa's longer, but then maybe I would have never left, you know, maybe right. I would have, you know, so I don't really, I don't really live that way. What does success look like for you today? Um, I think success looks like for me today, the ability to take care of my family alongside my husband and also the people who generously work with me every day. And also because of the people who generously work with me every day, create space for me to also be a mother and 
make sure that I give the time to my children that they require and that I don't just hyper-focus on this business because I think it's what they want so that they can buy all the toys they need and all the camps <laughs> and all the schools, right? And what they really want is me and my husband and our time. And so success looks like this, I guess, beautiful blend of like working hard while also having the space to like enjoy my family, which is really the most important thing. That's our show for today. Thank you so much for listening. Before you go, if you'd like to keep up with the latest design industry news, more great podcasts, check out new products, or browse job openings, head on over to businessofhome.com. If you have a note for the show or a story of your own to share, I'd love to hear from you. And you can email me at tradetales at businessofhome.com. Finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts to help others discover the show. Trade Tales is produced by me, Caitlin Peterson, with Fred Nicolaus and Caroline Burke. This episode was edited by Caroline Burke and Michael Castaneda. Our theme music is by Kyle Scott Wilson. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you again in two weeks.